0: Thank you. Welcome back to the Governance Podcast at the Center for the Study of Governance and Society. My name is Irina Schneider, and I'm the Assistant Director of the Center. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome a group of three fantastic social scientists to discuss the state of empirical research on self-governance. We have with us today Jennifer Motezashvili, Associate Professor in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh, Leah Palagashvili, Assistant Professor at the State University of New York Purchase, and Shruti Rajagopalan, research fellow at the Mercatus Center in Arlington, Virginia. Thank you all so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having having us.
0: Uh, So when we talk about self-governing social orders, we use concepts like federalism, polycentric uh, governance, constitutional governance, all of which tend to originate in Western and often specifically American empirical contexts. So we often assume a specific set of norms and institutions that may be absent or difficult to nourish in different parts of the world. Collectively, your research addresses really important questions about the nature and viability of self-governing social orders across almost every continent. Jennifer, you've been working on Central Eurasia. Uh, Shruti, you've been working on India. And Leah, you've been working on actually different cases in Africa and Native American groups in the US. So I want to start off with a couple of broad questions, which you can take in whichever order and direction you want. Um, Firstly, within your own research programs, What does a self-governing or polycentric social order look like? And what do you think are some of the biggest challenges to the emergence of polycentric social orders around the world? Um, So, Jenda, actually, to start off with you, the existence of self-governance and polycentricity in these contexts seems almost like an oxymoron or contradictory, but at the same time, it seems also like self-governance is absolutely fundamental uh, to creating social order in places where you have a de facto weak state. So, what does self-governance actually look like in some of the societies you've been studying?
2: Um, So, thank you again uh, for having us, Irina. Um, So... What does self-governance look like? But, you know, there's huge differences between authoritarian environments where I work, uh, particularly Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, but also in very weak states um, like Afghanistan. But often it is the case that these really uh, these authoritarian states can be very weak on many dimensions, and that's why uh, self-governing organizations often become a target for them because they are legitimate competitors to a state. Mm-hmm. So, um, what I found in in former Soviet republics of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan is that they have very robust forms of self organization at the community level called mahalas. Mm -hmm. And mahalas are like neighborhoods. And they've existed, you know, they existed before the Soviets, they were neighborhood associations, existing primarily in urban areas, uh, although in some like, rural uh, centers, mm-hmm. right? So around farming areas where you did have large mm-hmm. uh, concentrations of, of populations. But What the Soviets did is they tried to formalize these mahallas and made them part of the Soviet system. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, the government of Uzbekistan was sort of searching for a new ideology. And rather than replacing, uh, you know, they lost the Communist Party as the source of ideology, so they looked to tradition and culture, and they were sort of trying to define what it meant to be Uzbek or Uzbekness, and they associated it with Mahalas. And these are community organizations that can be the source of our culture, our norms, our values. And they even went further than the Soviets in formalizing these Mahala structures. So they created a position called the White Beard, Mm-hmm. And it's something like, you know, 30 or 40% of these white beards are women. Um, and these is a, almost a formal government position, and people are paid, and they created a Mahala committee. Um, these existed during the Soviet period. You know, they ebbed and flowed, but the independent Uzbekistan really formalized them, created these committees, put a KGB officer in every single Mahala, mm-hmm. who was then reporting on what was going on in communities, and... Uh, You know, in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, I spent a lot of time in Uzbekistan, about five years, and I would see government officials sort of brag to me. They would say, look at all this information I've collected from Mahalo. with your USAID grant, um, I'm reporting to the government about who's drinking too much Are there loose women in the neighborhood? (laughs) Um, Who's going to mosque too much? And I get all this great information because I'm the defender of the people. That was actually the name of the person. And I'm reporting this now to the government. I'm defending the cultural values. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but you can imagine within this kind of... very authoritarian environment that there was almost like a parallel Mahala that operated. Mm -hmm. So these these things were very important to people. Um, They performed an important value in terms of uh, providing public goods and services. So you saw like parallel Mahalas emerge where people were solving problems. And I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and I lived in a Mahala, and I saw this playing out. And so you could see the authoritarian face on one side, but then you saw the informal side on the other. Uh, where people do a you know, cultural ceremonies religious rites but also solving problems doing informal microcredit lending schemes and things like that mm-hmm. so it's really complicated but very interesting
0: fascinating and what actually what functions do the Mahalas play in terms of um, the provision of public services or social order what what do they give to the community that is, is it compensating for a lack of state infrastructure or provision of public services?
2: So it's really interesting. In the, in the authoritarian environment of Uzbekistan, they are actually providing a mechanism of participation that is often not found mm. in the state. And so the, the informal mahala will provide people an input, a say into a process, the But it coexists with the formal Mahala, which is still very state-driven. So it's really hard to disentangle these two Mm -hmm. right now. But what's happened in the past three years is the government of Uzbekistan is trying to dismantle the formal Mahala system. They got rid of the KGB guy. They're trying to make these more participatory Mm -hmm. rather than focused on service delivery. So Mm -hmm. on the one hand, they were very authoritarian. Um, they maintain social control, but on the other hand, they were you know a lot of the statistical evidence, survey evidence from the late '90s, early two thousands was which was really the last time that people were able to do survey work in this country, which was very closed. It was down at the bottom, you know, with Syria, North Korea in terms of its authoritarian repression. A lot of the data showed that people were able to the government was actually very effective in targeting poverty mm-hmm. um, and, and targeting the most vulnerable in communities through the information they were able to aggregate through mahallas
0: fascinating. Um, It seems that there's actually, in all of the case studies you're looking at, there is an element of co-optation of uh, self-governing societies by the center. Um, So, Leah, your work has looked at a different angle in which self-governing communities have been sabotaged in both Africa and in the U.S. Um,
3: What sort of mechanisms are you observing that are actually undermining local and community governance? So, I'm... So in those, both of those case studies, the Native Americans and uh, the West African chiefdoms before and after colonial rule, um, I'm, I'm interested in understanding how it is that external influence, whether it's the British going into West Africa or um, American influence, the Native Americans, um, are altering the incentives of the local leaders, um, various different leaders. So in the West African case... Uh, when British colonialism, um, when yeah when British colonialism began, um, they started to pay the chiefs a certain salary and then tie them to the British administration for carrying out their own directives, but also like what, you know they also said, continue doing what you were supposed to be doing. Um, but then they also started drawing up different jurisdictions and taking chiefs from one, Uh, Level and being like, okay, now you're the chief of this larger jurisdiction. Um, And that messed a bit with the incentive structures that were there before the British had come in. Uh, And it altered the incentives of the uh, chiefs to now be more accountable to what the British wanted them to do and less accountable to what the people wanted. And this was also enhanced by the problem that if the chiefs did start doing bad things and the people were upset, they could no longer depose the chief because the chief now had the British army. <laughs> and so there are letters where you could see that the chief is saying, um, Well, I just, I'll bring in the British army to suppress any of these uh, rebellions that are beginning. So, in that way, um, in the West African case, uh, the external influence of British indirect rule alter those incentives of the leaders to be less accountable to their own people and and in that way kind of subverted the self-governance that was occurring Mm -hmm. before the British had come in. Mm -hmm. And similarly, um, with European contacts and particularly American contact with the Native American institutions, uh, the Americans also started paying (laughs) the different leaders of the Native American groups to kind of carry out a bunch of directives that they wanted done, which is the land sales. And all the people opposed the land sales because they wanted to keep their land and that was their ancestral land and their tribal lands. Um, But then you see the switch of the incentives of the leaders to, again, be less accountable to what maybe the people want them to do and less, excuse me, less accountable to the people and more accountable to like what, you know, the external influence directives are telling them to do by influencing them with money basically. Mm-hmm. um and in both of those I also look at the differences in the ability to depose maybe in the African case versus the one in Native American. so in some sense in the um, the West African case is a bit worse because they did send in British armies and they did prevent all of the they did prevent a bunch of the chiefs from being deposed but that didn't happen in the Native American case, because the Americans, this is pre-early, uh, pre-1830s, mm-hmm. um, they didn't send in armies to stop the various leaders and chiefs from being deposed um, in the Native American case. So you still see that like mechanism there, but you don't see that mechanism in the, um, that mechanism dis- disappears in the West African case, the ability to depose a chief, So in some sense, there's still a constraint on the leaders um, in the Native Mm -hmm. Americans case that exists less in the Mm -hmm. West African case. Mm -hmm. And,
0: Shruti, you've also looked at a case in which central and decentralized systems actually are in conflict or at least produce vastly different outcomes. Um, You're looking at a case on environmental governance in India where local communities have been following ancient traditions and have been successful at managing their environment following a very long history of state control. So what's actually been behind the success of community-led governance, and are there any downsides to it as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the, so the area that we're studying is the district of Jabua in the state of Madhya Pradesh in India, and the, uh, the community that we're studying is about 85% dominated by the Bhil tribe. And the reason that this is important is there is a history of uh, disenfranchising the Beels from their traditional source of livelihood and land, which was the forest. And so this started with the British colonial policy of uh, nationalizing forests and bringing them under centralized colonial government control in the 1860s. And since then, there has just been a systematic move towards greater and greater centralization and nationalization of forests. And with each step, there is a further exclusion of the beagles from the forests. And uh, a very large part of this is also uh, the colonial idea of private property rights, which doesn't recognize community rights, Um, which where typically Indian tribes living in forests believed that they were custodians of forests and they did not own the forests. And that kind of did them in. Because if your value system is that you're the custodian of a forest and you just pass it on to the next generation, then you can have a colonial system that comes in and says, oh, but that's you don't own it, so we can disenfranchise you. So that is sort of what happened. So for centuries, those forests were beautifully managed. Uh, The Beels got their livelihood directly out of the forest. They were nurtured. They have a lot of sacred practices. One of them is called matavan, which basically means the forest is our mother and it's the densest part of the forest which is absolutely sacrosanct and must not be touched. So these kind of practices were completely disturbed because of the British colonial state and what we find is when the Indian government took over they continued with the same practices so it's just rapid deforestation which led to devastating ecological consequences but also economic consequences because the Beels lost their source of livelihood. Now coming to Jaguar district it's an extremely dry and hilly region and wasn't historically suited for cultivation without other irrigation systems. So what happened in that area is because they were incentivized to switch to cultivation, because land rights of agriculturists were protected, but forest rights of tribals weren't protected, the moment they made this switch, it, it was a very huge pressure on the kind of soil and the kind of groundwater resources in that area. So this is a story in a sense of government failure or failure of state policies, which exacerbated the ecological problems. And the finest example of that is that the government looked at the state of Beals and other farmers and said, oh, they're really poor, so we need to give them subsidies. And one of the subsidies was free electricity, which meant that it reduced the marginal cost of drilling groundwater, which meant that groundwater got... Uh, depleted even faster. So this is sort of the story of the Beals. In the last about 12 years, there has been a ground up movement in Jabua district, uh, a particular NGO called the Shiv Ganga NGO. Actually their name came about three or four years after they existed in the area. They started living with the people, uh, with the Beals in Jabwa District. They just started talking to them about their problems. And about three years in, they figured that while they all discussed different problems, all the problems converged towards uh, a water and a soil and water erosion problem. So the people of the community decided that they should form an NGO which was the Shiv Ganga NGO. It's uh, led by one person called Harsh Shohan, who's uh, from the tribal community and another person called Mahesh Sharma who came from outside the community. And they are about 15 people strong and they started using the indigenous practices of the area to replenish groundwater systems. And what they did was they used a traditional practice called the Halma, which is an idea of pooling collective labor and it's rooted in the Beal values of reciprocity and charity. And it's, it used to be called in two different contexts. One was agricultural labor. So if everyone needed to harvest at the same time, it made more sense to pool the labor, and the whole group will go to each farm one after the other during the harvest season. But it was also used during um, um, as a distress call, uh, essentially, because uh, any time there was a family that was destitute or there was a death in the family, they would call a halma, and the rule was that an able-bodied member from every family in the village must contribute. So, uh, one of the ideas was the Shivganga NGO requested um, volunteers, and the Bhil community said, "Oh, you are calling a halma." And they named the tradition of pooling the labor together and volunteering a few days a year to replenish watersheds, a halma. So the last 11 years, what they've done is they've called a halma uh, on top of a really important location called the Hatipawa Hill. And thousands of beels get together, they dig contour trenches, they replenish the traditional ponds, lakes, aquifers, um, they repair hand pumps, uh, You know, they clean out the wells, and then so on and so forth. And it's an incredible project. It started with about 900 to 1,000 people volunteering. And I think at last count, we have somewhere between 15 to 20,000 volunteers each year participating in it. So this is an extraordinary example of people within a community Overcoming what economists classically call the free rider problem or the collective action problem, where the idea is that it is a no one's incentive to actually participate in something where everyone in the community will benefit because people will free ride off that participation. So in traditional economic models, either this kind of service will be underprovided or not provided at all. And the Bheel community is an example of using their indigenous tradition and their ideas of reciprocity and their social system within which this reciprocity takes place to overcoming the collective action problem to actually improve groundwater systems and aquifers and ponds, which actually benefit everyone in the community, even those who didn't participate in the Halma. So I think it's a really lovely story of taking um, back power to govern resources and uh, kind of engage in a local community sort of self-governance project uh, which actually might even outperform centralized, you know, even colonial government projects. It seems
0: that across all of your cases there is an emergent story which goes something like this historically historical movements, whether that is um, colonization, Sovietization, or just any kind of centralization of power, have devastated local communities and local practices and the mechanisms that communities have used in the past to either maintain their natural resources or um, or, or to resolve any number of collective action problems. But at the same time, it seems that there's also a danger when we conceptualize these case studies and pick the sort of success cases is there a danger of, of kind of going too far in a utopian direction and romanticizing self-governance as something that always leads to kind of more accountable government, participatory government or within that community that is that actually respects culture and tradition. Is that always a good thing? And how do you actually evaluate um, within your own case studies where to draw a line and, and where to actually say well sometimes it can be problematic but Then, if that is the case, what do you do about it? So, I think there's you raised a number
2: of important points, Um, and I just want to remind everyone that you know we're talking about you know my case. I talk about how the Soviets uh, got involved, or the new states got involved with customary authority in Afghanistan. You know, the Taliban, other regimes got involved with customary authority and changed incentive structures. But there is no such thing as authentic, Mm. real, pure you know forms of custom and customary authority, these things in self-governing groups, right? These things have been interacting with outsiders for many, many centuries. So, And that's why um, Kathy Thalen has this concept called institutional layering. And a couple of other scholars have used this heuristic to help us think about these layers of interaction. So if you think about Afghanistan, right, the, many of the forms of self, self-governing authorities have interacted with the Mughals, the Safavids. Uh, the Russian Empire, I mean, you name it, there's been this interaction, Islam, right, when Islam came, you know, more than a thousand years ago. Um, so these things have completely altered the way these customary and self-governing authorities work. So there's no such thing as pure. These things are always evolving and always changing over time and outsiders are always changing them. And that's, we should expect that. I mean, there's very few, that's why the anthropologists study these remote places in Brazil, right? That are like really untouched or these remote desert islands, they become very special cases. But for the rest of us, we're working in the area of interactions mm-hmm. and we should expect that. And there's nothing pure, authentic. Mm-hmm. And these terms drive me crazy. Yeah. Um, but in terms of outcomes, how do you evaluate them? So I typically evaluate them in terms of service provision. That's what I'm really interested in. Um, less so in sort of the normative aspects of gender representation and things like that. Um, often, gender representation doesn't lead to better service provision outcomes, which is the outcome that most people care about the most. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there, are, there are correlations between them, of course. Um, but looking at, uh, for me, it, it's provision of, of public goods and services mm-hmm. is really the governance variable that matters mm-hmm. the most.
1: Mm-hmm. I would add to that, I think one important thing to remember about self-governance within these communities is that it is nested within the institutions of these communities. And every community can have certain customs and traditions and practices which are amazing from like a Western perspective, and it's going to have certain customs and practices which are perverse, right? So in that sense, all of this is nested within that institution. So I'm not talking specifically about the Beals, but just for instance, if there is a community which has got extremely misogynistic practices, right, or if there's a community that practices something like female genital mutilation, those are not great outcomes. Right. But they are part of whatever self-governing structure that particular community has. So you might get some of those along with service provision and, you know, natural resource allocation and so on and so forth. So I think that is really essential to understand that there is no amazing first world nirvana comparison that you can have. Having said that, I think it is important to recognize what it is one is studying. Right, so I want to look at two things. One is the outcome, which is groundwater replenishment, and you know what what the ecological uh, sort of uh, resource replenishment has taken place in that area, and that is fairly easy to measure or understand. You know, you can kind of do a comparative study of what things look like before they were self-governing and after they started self-governing, or vice versa. Uh, I think a third part of it, which is a little bit difficult to measure, but equally important, especially when we are talking about authoritarian regimes that Jen is studying, uh, or, you know, uh, this this uh, ancient, not even ancient, but like rather contemporary problem of the tension between colonial states and indigenous states, which both Leah and I are looking at. I think one very important thing there is the... Status which comes from self governing, which was taken away Mm -hmm. when there was a colonial or an authoritarian regime that was put in place. Yes. So I think that is an understudied and an undervalued outcome. It can't be counted. when people work in the field, they immediately recognize it, the pride with which someone in a slum will tell you that, you know, oh, we all contributed towards this public good, Mm -hmm. or the pride with which the Beals talk about how they replenished aquifers Mm -hmm. and how they're replenishing the forest, which is actually their goddess, right? And I think that is incredibly important, very difficult to measure, We take lots of pictures of when people are voting in ballot boxes and, you know, the great dance of democracy that takes place in Western democracies and things like that. But this is an equally important democratic institution. So I would really measure these two things. And I just
2: want to jump in here before I interrupt Ilya. Um, But we think about what's going on all around the world in terms of trust in public institutions, trust, trust in organizations, public and private, right? Whether it's religious organizations, you know, churches, governments. All around the world we see people really losing trust in these organizations. And one thing you're also seeing, especially in the places where I work, I can't speak for India, but you're seeing um, people trust in these kinds of organizations actually increase at a time when um, trust in the state, for example, is decreasing, and people are deeply disillusioned with government in general right now in the United States and in, in, in Europe. Um, and they're looking to other solutions. and It's it's very interesting to see sort of almost a resurgence in these kinds of self-governing organizations in different places.
1: Yeah, and I, I also want to emphasize that these, in, these uh, communities are not as untouched by Western thought as we think they are. If you talk to the Beals, they talk about climate change they use the phrase climate change. And then they clarify that they don't mean global climate change, they mean microclimate change, which is you know, the loss of their ecology and their vegetation. That is an incredible thing. It's probably happened in India because of the data and cell phone revolution that took place over the last decade. And so now suddenly they have access to technology which can also give them a very powerful understanding of what is going on and also a very powerful way of delivering their message that this is worth protecting. So, you know, there is, you know, as, as Jen said, it's layered, right? It's institutional layering, it's layering of knowledge, uh, which is sort of entangled with practice and custom. So it's, it's hard to generalize and one really just needs to look at each microcosm at its own level for its own sake, and then proceed from there.
3: Um, and to add on this point of kind of romanticizing self-governance and even governance accountability, I think this is a big problem that at least I face when um, trying to understand governance accountability. Because you can say, like, okay, this community, there's a lot of accountability, but, like, what if they're perverse... <laughs> Like ideas of what it means for government to be accountable. So, yeah, the leader is accountable, but then you get all these, what well, from the outside we would say are perverse things, but, but the mechanisms are still in place, right? So, you've got that kind of thing going on. And then the second is yes, the leaders can be accountable to their own, um, to their own people. And maybe we see that happening. But that doesn't mean around them that they're not also going around and fighting other groups yes. and having these problems emerge because that also does not get counted in some sense of like self governance, right? So if I look at it's a problem I face, right? So if I look at okay, are the incentives in place for leaders to be accountable to the people? Do we see this kind of you know governance, self enforcing government accountability, governance accountability happening? Yes, but then we still get these two problems of you know, let's not over-romanticize over, over um, romanticize what this means, right? Uh, because they could be working fine within their communities, but maybe there's a bunch of violence happening mm-hmm. with outside groups and they're treating them not, not great. Mm-hmm.
0: I guess the benefit in in some ways of, of paying homage or at least respect to self-governing systems is that you might end up with this vast array of experiments in living across mm-hmm. countries within countries, and then you end up with a lot of variation in terms of public service provision, economic development on a local level, mm-hmm. um, and people would in principle be free to, to move between and vote with their feet um, in an ideal world. But oftentimes, I mean, we do get the situation where you have, let's say, like the privilege of, of being included in a local council, and if that is the thing that represents your interests as a woman, you might... You find that beneficial, but also you might be signing on to a very patriarchal order. Um, so in some ways, it's there's this kind of unclean trade-off, and it's hard to tell what kinds of governance to, to privilege.
1: I don't think that's a problem just at the local community level. Uh, From what I read in the newspapers, people are accusing American presidential politics of having the exact same problem of women not having a voice or not having a seat at the table for 100 plus years until very recently. So just to remember, all of this governance business, no matter at which level it is, is going to mimic the environment that you live in, right? So I don't think that's a weird or a perverse consequence of you know, these poor underdeveloped countries where there are a thousand experiments that are blooming. I live in Harlem. I'm a couple of miles away from the Bronx. And the living conditions of the people who live in the Bronx are completely different from where I live. And this is first world Manhattan sort of, you know, microcosm that I'm talking about. So I think there is always going to be this difference in local structures, difference in communities, difference in school districts. In this case, it's difference in tribal communities. Instead of gangs fighting in Latin America, it might be, you know, tribal chiefs fighting in Africa or in India. So I think it is both difficult, I think it's problematic to generalize this to the developing world alone. And I think all government structures in some sense mimic what is happening in that society.
2: And what is the alternative, right? I mean, so it's nice to tell, uh, you know, women in Afghanistan that there's going to be a nice, beautiful state for them, and you promise that, and you spend a trillion dollars trying to develop it, but it actually never happens. Mm -hmm. And so you can create this idealized alternative of what the future should look like, or people are much more pragmatic. And I think people, this is something people all around the world share in common, right? It's this idea that, Um, they can affect things locally, and, uh, you know, in rural Afghanistan, I found women who were running their villages, who were considered village leaders, um, women who are prominent in um, religion, and throughout Central Asia, this is actually a really important uh, understudied and often neglected role, is someone who can read the Quran, for example, Um, and and something else to remember is that social norms change, so... Uh, you know, if you look at customary authority in in Afghanistan, a big issue is um, dealing with brides and trading of women and trading of women as chattel and um, honor killings and things like that. And what I found remarkable is that people know this is a problem. Media, for example, plays a huge role in raising awareness of this, not human rights campaigns necessarily. So when it happens, when someone's killed in such a manner, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and, India. Uh, and it makes the news, yes. and people talk about it, and if it were such a common phenomenon, it wouldn't be newsworthy, you see? And to me, the fact that these things are making the news indicate to me that social norms have, have, have changed, but we hear about these things because they're bad, but that people are talking about them because they know they're bad. So because they're talking about them, if it were everyday life, we wouldn't hear about it, Mm -hmm. I don't think. Mm -hmm. So that's an example to me of how these social norms are changing and evolving through their own processes rather than through something um, that's externally enforced.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, along with that, actually, given that... You've all done really interesting, both archival and research and field work, and going into the details of case studies, which is not usual for economists to do. have you been surprised by what you found in terms of the assumptions that you've been using as an economist? Have you found interesting information that you'd bring back to the table, to the theory, and find actually, well, we've been misunderstanding something about how we govern ourselves, or what are the most important mechanisms, or have you changed anything about the way you think uh, as just as an economist more generally?
1: I think the standard models, which keep showing over and over again the breakdown of cooperation and uh, collective action failure, because individuals are rational, self-interested, having perfect knowledge and perfect foresight, and therefore they will never succumb to a free rider problem and so on. I think I see a lot more cooperation social cooperation in the world than the models suggest on paper. So that is definitely one lovely thing about, you know, field research or even you you may not even need to go to the field, just reading about these different cases. Like Eleanor Ostrom has documented hundreds of cases where you have this kind of social cooperation. So that sort of flies directly in the face of very, very standard, like sort of canonical economic models. Uh, The second thing that I was genuinely surprised uh, to find on the field is we all sort of, you know, at a a very basic level understand that, you know, there's the state, there is local government, there is society, and then there's some kind of like informal governance structure within society. I was amazed by how entangled all of these different layers were. Uh, On paper we like to cleanly have a separation of, oh, this is a constitutional issue, this is a state government issue, this is a federal government issue. Um, When you go to the field, the people uh, don't, they just say government, they don't differentiate between a central government scheme and a state government scheme and a municipal government scheme, right? So they think of the state as a monolith. They interact with different programs of the state a little bit differently, right uh so they i've seen in india this huge participation when it comes to voting and franchise but when it comes to other kinds of subsidies or welfare programs that are given the participation is highly entangled based on what Kind of government structure and rules are going on, and what is the institutional or sort of like the social environment of the people. So I think the entanglement aspect is something that genuinely surprised me. It's extremely underemphasized in the literature where we like to have very clean rules and demarcations, but that kind of completely breaks down
3: uh, when you actually study this mm-hmm. from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. So I have a story that. Um, I think can highlight what this type of research that we all do kind of brings to the table or to the standardized way, standard way of doing it. So there is this paper um, that tried to look at pre-colonial African institutions and categorize them on how decentralized or centralized um, these chiefdoms and kingdoms were. Uh, And... Then they did an analysis based on that and found that the more, like, centralized chiefdoms are actually had better development outcomes today than the decentralized. So I unpacked that and I was like, okay, which chiefdoms are they classifying as centralized versus decentralized or centralized versus decentralized chiefdoms? And it turned out that, like, the ethnographic and the fieldwork evidence that I was looking – that I found using – like, just going back and figuring out how did they classify the, like, Ashanti kingdom, for example, and the Yoruba kingdom in Nigeria and Ghana, this economics paper had classified them as centralized. But all of the, like, historians and the ethnographic um, work had said, like, no, 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 these are examples of, like, decentralized system because they're using, like – there was; They were large kingdoms, but the, all of the units had great local autonomy. And so I think they were misrepresenting um, the idea of the conception of centralization versus decentralization in this paper by kind of just grabbing large large kingdoms i'm saying these are centralized but in fact like the devils and the details right when you unpack that you actually found that no, no no those kingdoms were decentralized in the way that we understand it and not and they wouldn't be like the more centralized kingdoms but they kind of conflated that by just picking out large kingdoms and didn't like understand the details that was going on in that. So I think in that sense, this type of work that we're all doing is kind of unpacking <laughs> that and giving a little, it's like the devils in the details type thing. Um, and I think that is in addition to what Shruti said, that is also bringing that to the mm-hmm. economic statement be like, hey, maybe your concept and how you're capturing this mm-hmm. is a bit mm-hmm. is wrong.
2: And as a political scientist, um, I think one of the Gospels, is that, you know, it's building state capacity, state centralization, how do you do this, how do you consolidate states, and non-state authority is typically seen as antagonistic towards a centralizing state. So it's, you need uniformity, you need unity of command, and all these things, these characteristics which are so appealing to states. But what I found in my own research is that, um, for example, in Afghanistan, I've done a lot of econometric analysis, which finds when people have stronger faith in their customary authorities, they're more likely to support gender equality, Mm -hmm. Uh, they're likely to support um, democracy, and they're more likely to have trust in the central government. So it's not a zero-sum relationship, it's a positive-sum relationship, that when they have more trust in their local authorities, it also means that they're, and I I try to understand why this is, this really contradicts a lot of what we know about political science, right? Is that these things are in competition, rather than serving as complements to Mm -hmm. one Another. And they, they do serve as compliments because, at least in the, in the Afghanistan context, I was trying to explain why, and this explanation might not hold for every other, every other country, but in that particular environment, these organizations provide individuals with a sort of a bulwark of defense against government predation. Mm-hmm. And so government officials are more likely to respect community rights when they know that their customary authorities are stronger. They're in a stronger bargaining position vis-a-vis the state, and it means they're treated better by the state. When when they're weaker, it means they're more subject to predation, Mm -hmm. which leads to all the kinds of bad outcomes. So I think it's a case of, uh, to me, this is a big contribution to political science, Mm -hmm. and it talks about that rather than trying to replace these things or eliminate them for all the normative reasons we've talked about, that they can evolve and that they can uh, substitute, Mm -hmm. uh, complement,
3: I'm sorry, uh, what the state's trying Mm to do. I would just... I wanted to add, too, is I think what all of us are kind of also pushing for is like a multiple methods approach that we're bringing into our respective fields um, and just highlighting the importance of field work and case studies um, that get to the detail to tell us, to give us the context of what's going on, uh, because... Again, you can look at it from above and you can classify some – you're like, these institutions have good formal institutions or they look like this, but then, no, let's look on on the ground and, like, what are the de facto institutions and some of, like, Jen's research especially highlights that, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I can't emphasize and second what Leah said enough, which is, I think um, this is a little less of a problem in political science, but particularly in economics, mm-hmm. there is a very, yes. uh, I think, qualitative work, case study method, and you know, just the multiple methods approach. I won't say it's exactly frowned upon because to frown upon it, you must first acknowledge it. <laughs> so, in one sense, in the mainstream, it's kind of ignored. It's happening very much at the periphery, and I think. That That's a problem because a lot of the big economic questions which are on the table, whether it is in terms of development, whether it's in terms of building state capacity, public good provisioning, these are all big questions that are on the table. And I think this kind of multiple methods approach and studying individual cases for their own sake, I think is really important and can really inform. The conversation and add to both the big theoretical work that is going on in economics and a lot of the empirical work which is going on in economics.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the reasons why economists have really struggled with a lot of these questions is because they don't actually measure the things that yes. they think they're measuring. So Leah's example is a really perfectly good example of this. They code something in a certain way without actually understanding, I wouldn't even say the details, but the foundational institutions on which right. these things are based. Right. Yes. So um, You know, there's a lot of work right now on chiefs, for example, and you see, you know, uh, uh, James Robinson has a really famous paper on Mm -hmm. chiefs in West Africa, and um, you can look at that paper and say, well, you're making an assumption about the authority of chiefs that maybe they don't have, and if you were actually to do more qualitative field work, you might still have the same quantitative result but have a very different explanation as to why that is the case, Mm -hmm. and those explanations mean everything. Right? Yes. and if you code things wrong, yep. right, you're not really going to get the right answer. So, what are we, unless we're doing research that's context specific, in, especially on these kinds of issues, it's really important to get these foundational institutional stories um, to have a, a more accurate picture, a more granular picture of what's actually happening.
0: It sounds like a lot of what your work entails is actually sociology, anthropology, a lot of these. Um, kind of, well, quote unquote, softer social science disciplines that aren't doing this kind of really hot RCT work, um, going into uh, the field and testing, testing different policy interventions with experiments. Um, Obviously, all of this is important. And I think that nobody would kind of say that you shouldn't do one or the other. Um, but why do you think that um, this more fine-grained sociological work isn't actually entering the economics profession? It's not something that you would come across as an econ student. Um, if, you, if you're if you taking a course in economics, for the most part, uh, you're exposed to a lot of mathematics and a lot of formal modeling. So what, what do you think is going on in economics? Um, why is this not getting the,
1: this kind of methodology not getting this sort of attention it, it needs? I think one of the reasons is the obsession that economists have with identification, which is basically proving the strong causal link between A to B, right? And if you're not able to show the strong causal link between A to B, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist or it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just simply means you couldn't show the link, right? So a lot of the questions that economists ask for various reasons to do with the political economy of academia in economics, especially in the United States and the Western world, is that you get published when you can show strong causal links or when you've solved the identification problem. And if you don't have a methodology that can solve the identification problem or that doesn't even try to solve the identification problem, then you're kind of doing something that they're not that interested in. Uh, In one sense, the randomized control trials or, you know, as we call them, the RCTs blew up so much is that they bypassed, the identification problem, right? If you have a control and a treatment and everything is identical between the two groups except who got the control and the treatment, which was randomized, which, by the way, is the gold standard for any statistical method, then you don't need to solve the identification problem. So in one sense, I would say a lot of this, you know, just this is a problem of how we do economics within the academy. It's... um, it's a problem of being captured by what we call the identification mafia uh, within economics. Now, having said that, uh, I think the biggest collateral sort of damage because of this identification mafia is that economists are only focusing on problems where you can first get the data to show the causal link. And second, where you can actually show the causal link through the various statistical methods. And if you can't show that, you can't get published. So in a sense, then you don't deal with that problem, right? Some of the problems that we are looking at, it is very, very difficult. Some of, very often the sample sizes are too small. Very often we can't find all the control variables, right? It's very, very difficult to do like a clean before and after statistical analysis. But that doesn't mean there wasn't change Right. And or that doesn't mean that there won't be change over a long period of time. It's just very difficult to capture some of these things in the kind of data science structure that is currently within academia. So I think that's a fundamental problem, not of economics, which is a lovely discipline, but the way economics is currently being pursued within the Western World Mm -hmm. Academy. Mm -hmm. Right. But the nice thing about the Western World Academy is also it's quite diverse Uh, There are lots of different universities. There are some excellent programs, much like yourself, you know, uh, encouraging this kind of self-governance through the King's Colleges uh, Center and the workshop. So there is space to do this kind of thing. But I think this is the
3: reason why you don't see it in the mainstream. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Um, I might add also that the outcomes that economists are interested in understanding are GDP, economic growth and development, which I also am interested in understanding, Um, and they, uh, crime rates, for example, there's economics, um, in we look at the economics of crime and policing and all that literature, the output variable is always crime rate, what did it do to crime rate, what did it do to, you know, all of these output variables, so I'm going to show a contrast, which is what Eleanor Ostrom's work kind of pushed on that, is like, okay, Let's not only look at crime rate, but like how are communities, were communities actually satisfied with these various measures or policies that started to um, come about? So she started using like survey work to evaluate different policing uh, policies or different policing. yeah, different different uh, sets of changes that happened in policing through the 1960s and the 1970s. So I think it provided... So bef- and, and she used surveys to kind of evaluate the stuff. And there are a bunch of different, like, 14 other variables that we should look at, not just crime rate, that matter for why this is important. And I think... So she's kind of pushing this, like, let's also look at the soft stuff a bit, like, where is. Did this new policy um, create fear among residents in the community rather than, like, did it just increase arrest rates or crime rates? And one of the problems I think she highlights, and also the the standard approach to studying um, crime, economics of crime, is, like, also looking at arrest rates. And arrest rates might not tell the full story either because the police departments, and she highlights this – will increase their arrest rates, but they're getting the wrong people. <laughs> and then you have this problem of, like, now everyone mistrusts the police. And, like, trust is, again, a hard variable to go after. I think economists are now starting to do that a lot in um, development, where they're like, okay, let's look at values and surveys. it's kind of the soft stuff. So I think as that's coming about, maybe we'll see more, you see more Ostrom, uh, you know, peering through these different things by using surveys, values, a little bit more of the, you know, are you satisfied or do you fear the police now? Um, Things like that.
1: I would add to this whole rate of business, like, you know, uh, I mean, the the divorce rate or crime rate or whatever. In India, the divorce rate is increasing. Right. And a lot of the conservatives are sort of lamenting the fact that the Hindu family structure is breaking down and the divorce rate is increasing. I see that both as a positive thing in terms of, you know, I mean, women are now in a much more liberalized position to leave unhappy marriages. But I think the divorce rate only captures a number of legal divorces. Mm -hmm. I think the number of unhappy marriages within the Hindu conservative Mm -hmm. system was way higher before. It's just there was no exit option, Mm -hmm. right? So when we start counting things that can only be counted... We are going to ignore things that cannot be counted because then we can't count people living miserable lives in the same home. We can't count people who are separated and sort of living in separate homes but kind of still legally joined. These are just things that don't get counted. So I think we need to move away from this extreme counting business that economists do, and add, as Leah said, Mm -hmm. through other measures to, one, to look at variables that are not easily quantifiable, Mm -hmm. and to, you know, not just rely on rates and percentages of divorce and crime. There's a a bigger, richer story that's going on uh, under the surface. Mm -hmm.
2: And I I don't think that this is a problem that's unique to economics by any (laughs) stretch of the imagination. So um, look at anthropology and sociology. They're not necessarily speaking to economists either. Um, And I think that's a real shame. So they have their own biases and their own set of concepts and ideas they're working with. So they're not interested often. And there are very actually few that go beyond sort of a narrow set of questions and concepts and ideas that seem to unify disciplines. Mm-hmm. And economics, for whatever reason, versus is really focused on causal relationships. Political science is also very focused on these causal relationships. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, the study of mathematics and game theory is really hugely powerful to give us a theoretical lens to understand problems. It's also limited. So I would tell students to study the math, study the econometrics, but also study other... Uh, Uh, other methods. So the RCT revolution, for example, to me was... Um, and I you know, saw Esther Duflo and Banerjee and Kramer get the Nobel Prize for this and and you know many economists uh, were critical of this The RCTs are very narrow, okay sure they're narrow but these people got out into the world they did incredibly yeah. hard work yeah. they should be celebrated and rewarded mm-hmm. and of course now we know the critiques of the method and its limits but if they didn't do it we wouldn't appreciate that mm-hmm. and, you know this is huge work that they did and for me it's actually I've seen a huge change in economics from the work that they did because people now appreciate field work, field methods much more. Mm-hmm. I'm dealing with economists from a wide range of epistemical, uh, epistemological approaches who are interested in the kind of ethnographic yeah. work that I do. Um, they understand that even with an RCT you cannot get at causal mechanisms. Yes. You can say a program had an effect, but you cannot say anything about why it had an mm-hmm. effect. Right? And so people are now interested much more than they were before in this. Um, so if I would just make a plea to anybody, um, we should we should be counting we should be quoting we should be doing a lot of things we should be training our students in so many multiple methods that they're choosing the right hammer to get at the question that they're answering. And so maybe they're not going to be, you know, be able to do ethnographic methods, but they should be able to say, ah, this is a time where I should be using it. Too often we train our students to be like us. We train them in a very narrow way um, to look uh, look like we do and to use the same hammers that we do. And that's wrong. And this is a real plea to interdisciplinarity. And interdisciplinarity really means, you know, really talking to one another about different approaches, different theoretical approaches, and different empirical
3: approaches. Mm. And Jen's discussion, I want to highlight one thing that she hinted at that I think is also um, in economics, we tend to not focus as much, now we do a little bit more, but the why variable, the mechanisms, are secondary in some sense. So you're like, okay, centralization or decentralization might lead to greater economic development or something like that. And then you kind of throw in, like, here are a couple, like, mechanisms. Whereas what we're also trying to push for is explaining the why. Like, what, you know, here's the why versus they kind of have that secondary, and it's more like one variable, second variable, a couple of different mechanisms. Let's test these in different ways. But our focus is on the I, I think at least mine is on those mechanism and the Y variables um, that are usually secondary.
2: And it's the Y part, that's the policy implication.
3: Yes. Right? And that's what people
2: are really interested in. And so then you draw, you have an RCT and you draw the completely wrong implications for for the study. If you can't explain why this was the case, because Mm -hmm. it tells you a lot about scalability. It tells you about replicability, why it will work in one case Mm -hmm. and not the other. Mm -hmm. And so the folks who are working on the RCTs are bumping up against this. They're dealing with the scalability issue. They understand the limitations very well Mm -hmm. to their method. Um, And for folks to pretend that they don't is really creating a straw man. Mm-hmm. Um, they understand the, the, the limitations, and so they're now reaching out and understanding why, right? Yeah. Like, what are the mechanisms? I mean, why we solve it? This is something it. we should yeah. all be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Whether you're Austrian, whether you're Australian, <laughs> whatever your perspective, we need to understand our limits.
1: Yeah, and I think within the academy, we need fewer fads. You know, like we all jump, you know, there's one new statistical method and we all jump on it. Like, you know, it used to be instrumental variables. Then it was research discontinuity design. Then it was RCTs. Like there's always like this fad, which is a new thing that kind of carries through for the next 10 years. And as Jen said, that's not you don't want to follow the fad and you don't want to train your students in a narrow way on what is currently trendy in economics. You want to really train them in a robust way, either themselves to pursue multiple methods or to teach them how to collaborate. With other people, so that you can actually effectively pursue multiple methods. And I don't think you just need one way of looking at a particular problem. Mm-hmm. Maybe the ecological part of it needs to be studied from an ethnographic lens, you know, or from uh, a case study lens. Uh, but maybe there are other questions within the same community which impact governance, which is, you know, subsidies or uh, the delivery of vaccinations which can be studied by your standard methods, vaccinations can be counted, we can do very very clean RCTs on deworming uh, medication that is given to a control versus treatment, so it also depends on within a particular community, within a particular environment, depending on the problem that you're studying and the kind of public service delivery, you can use multiple Methods, multiple disciplinary lenses.
2: But I'm just going to push back on you for a second. I think fads are glorious (laughs) because fads are sources of innovation. Fads are normal science, right? So if we were just doing the standard model, like, you guys wouldn't be where you are, you guys, you gals, right? Um, so I think the fads are what push us forward. They, I mean, yes, we look back, and there was a time when everyone was doing Bayesian statistics, right? I mean, who does that
3: anymore?
2: <laughs> no, that was a fad. But, like, if we didn't go through that, we wouldn't know, like, its limitations. And I think these are, you know, they're huge sources of innovations, and we should celebrate them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're part Of our diversity. And we should know, we should know that with anything that we're teaching or any instrument that we're using, it has strengths and limits. And anybody who teaches these methods as panaceas is wrong. Whether it's ethnographic methods or interviews or anything. Everything has its limitations. And that's why it's such an exciting time, right? To be doing what we're doing, to have the opportunities that we have. To be able to use all these different methods, these different theoretical lenses to look at interesting problems in new ways we can collect data in the ways that we never could before. There's so many things I don't understand, right? About remote sensing and this, you know, different multiple, so many multiple approaches. We can travel the world in ways we could never do before. What an exciting time to have our profession.
0: That's an excellent point. I mean, before we before we actually uh, finish the podcast, I want to drive in on this sociology of science itself. Obviously, science gets better the more perspectives there are from the methods, from the conceptual frameworks, from the kinds of data that we look at, and also from the kinds of people who bring new ideas to the table. So the scientific community tends to just benefit the more diversity there is in it. And just speaking on... A, Uh, On one element of diversity, you are three successful women economists, uh, social scientists, and I wanted to uh, finish the podcast by asking you, how do we get more women into economics?
3: (laughs) No one wants to start off that.
1: Um, Okay, so I, I don't mean to sound provocative, but I don't know what the optimal number of women in economics is. Right, So everyone seems to have some consensus that we are operating at a suboptimal level and there are too few. But I actually don't know what the number is or where we're supposed to go. We're supposed to go up somewhere. But it's not clear to me that if the population is 50% men and 50% women, then every single profession should necessarily reflect a 50-50 split. That is, you know, so I just want to put that on the table. Um, I think there are many... Uh, things going on within the structure of the academy, which are a little bit problematic. We have a fantastic role model with us in Jen. Uh, I mean, Jen is a very, very successful uh, academic. She also does field work. She also has four children whom she had during the process of getting tenure. And that is an exceptional, I mean, she's almost like a unicorn in the business, (laughs) right? One of the things I think that happens, not just in economics, but in general, in, you know, within the academy is that your PhD clock and your tenure clock are very, very much overlapped with your reproductive clock. Right, And there are other social sciences where the pool of women is larger to draw from. And so even with women dropping out for these reasons and the family structural reasons, you don't see such a big gap or depletion. But uh, within economics, where from the beginning there was a very small pool of women to draw from to start with, you kind of see this big impact right? And I think that is one issue that that is there in economics. I think it's fairly easy to fix institutionally if, you know, there was a little slightly different rules or, uh, you know, we didn't have this kind of tenure system that we have right now. So there are ways to think about that. Uh, But I think that is definitely uh, one reason why you have fewer professional economists. The bigger reason, of course, as I mentioned, is that the pool to choose from is smaller. And I don't know why that is, but somewhere at the high school, undergraduate, graduate level, women are dropping out of economics, even if they major in economics. And I am not sure why that is. I've heard various explanations. I've heard that the the graduate school culture, the seminar culture, tends to be quite aggressive because it's the social science that uses very sort of macho, quantitative, mathematical modeling methods. I don't know how much uh, credence I would give to that explanation, but that is one that has floated around quite a lot. In recent times, I mean, going by the survey results of the American Economic Association, I was sort of flabbergasted by the amount of sexual harassment that was found through the anonymous survey. Now, I want to highlight that that you know, sample size was fairly small and the survey was anonymous, but the survey results I think sort of shocked the economic community. So I think those sorts of institutional changes also need to be figured out. Uh, I mean, this is a part sort of like a cute story, but I think an important one to highlight the point. I recently read that the American Economic Association has said that we need to stop having job interviews in hotel rooms the number of female economists who've told me that they were feeling incredibly awkward sitting on a bed with their feet dangling off the bed while, you know, four out of five committee members who are who are gentlemen interviewing them, I've lost count of how many people have had that experience. I'm sure Leah's had that experience, right? So just small things like this. So, you know, this is a rule that ended now in 2019. So. These are sort of like small things that I can see changing in the profession, but the bigger question, I frankly have absolutely no idea.
3: Uh, I would love to hear your your thoughts on it. So, I, um, in addition to what Shruti said, I think one for me, I don't, I can't answer the question broadly. I'll just say what got me into it more is, um, I think Shruti said it's just having female role models too in economics. So for me. Um, I was an undergraduate, and I don't know why, but um, the economist Claudia Williamson, who's at Mississippi State University, I saw her present and her work, and one, I loved her work, and two, like, I was just, wow, she's incredible, and kind of served as a role model for me, and then um, later, I was introduced to Eleanor Ostrom's work, and I, again, what I thought what she was working was really interesting, and I was like, she's a female role model that I could follow. And as Shruti said, I think Jen is an excellent female role model, too, in the steps of Eleanor Ostrom with with all the field work and stuff. So um, I don't have much more to add to that other than I think the role of female role models, I don't know why um, it was important for me because I distinctly remember just like thinking about economics, but it was also the type maybe of research that like Claudia Williamson was doing and Eleanor Ostrom was doing that just I connected with and also that they happened to be female. I was like, okay, I don't know if that, that's a connection there, but I use them as role models basically.
2: Uh, so you know speaking as a political scientist I teach in a policy school it's been pretty hard to watch there's about 30 faculty in my in my school and I've watched the number of women faculty members dwindle yeah we have about six or seven women in our department Um, and until very recently we had no women running research centers we had no women in in leadership positions at all and no one seemed to think that that was a problem (laughs) um and uh you know, when, when colleagues dealt with me, um, and, I, you know, I'm one of the reasons I, I've been able to have four children on the tenure clock was because I was married, and I'm still married to another <laughs> academic, and we're blessed with incredibly flexible schedules mm-hmm. um, where we could stay at home, where we'll stay at home with our children and switch and do mm-hmm. shifts, and, um, you know, I've done research on gender issues in Afghanistan, and I've done um, a research project with a a brilliant Afghan colleague on women's leadership and what explains um, when women become leaders in Afghanistan. So it was a very, it was a qualitative project just looking at strong women leaders and how do they emerge. And it was interesting, it wasn't statistical, rock stars, businessmen, businesswomen, um, uh, political leaders We looked all across the spectrum, you know, pop singers. And they all had one thing in common. They said they had families that really supported them. Yeah. Families that supported them. And I know it's something that we can't control in economics or social science. And it's something that I've really benefited from um, personally is having a partner who takes on half of the roles and responsibilities. And I'm here in London with you right now. And he's uh, cleaning up the house. He says he's doing a week's worth of laundry that he hasn't done since (laughs) I've been gone. And that's huge, right? And for me, these are personal stories um, that have made this work joyful. Um, And if I didn't have that support, I probably would be telling you a different story. The institutional issues, of course, are very, very important as well. I don't think there's any easy answers to them. You can have, as we all know, when we study self-governance, there's rules on paper and there's rules in practice. And often it's the women who are not willing to step forward and talk about the problems in practice because there's... Uh, they have uh, departmental chairs who are not supportive and they don't have tenure. There's other strange dynamics that are going on that people don't feel comfortable speaking about. And uh, these things will change over time. Yeah. Um, and as we know, we study self-governance and social norms and all these things. They evolve. We can't expect them to change tomorrow, but we could be part of, part of lifting other women up. Mm-hmm. As Leah said, yeah. yes, having other women to rely on is also very important. And men.
1: Yeah. I recently read that uh, there is, uh, culturally, in the United States, women speak, uh, young girls, not even women, they they make themselves heard in the classroom less than the boys as they grow older. So it sort of starts at about the same level at your kindergarten and, you know, at, at your primary school education and as they grow older. So this is clearly in, a little bit more sociological and not just to do with economics. So if, if we have voices who could have become economists who are less heard at the high school level and then went into a discipline where there are fewer men at the uh, undergraduate level and then at the graduate level, so there might be a pipeline issue here which I have neither identified nor am I capable of solving. But there might be a larger pipeline issue here, which we just need to understand. And I don't think that's true only for economics. I think that's true for STEM. I think that's true for sociology, for political science, for all sorts of different disciplines. And, uh, you know, as Jen said, the family, I mean, all of us, any any female economist or political scientist academic who's married has this major problem of uh, also having to place her spouse or partner in some sort of a sensible job and a lot of the universities tend to be in smaller towns or tend to be isolated campuses it is quite difficult when uh, on women a little bit disproportionately so when you live in a society where for you know, decades, the expectation is that the the female partner is the trailing spouse, for instance. So I don't think these are things that are unique to economics. I think there's just like a larger social change, which will eventually lead to this. Uh, but economics specifically, like, you know, things like what the AEA is doing now in terms of having surveys, getting more, more female voices heard. Um, and also, you know, Even a tiny change, like not having to sit on a hotel bed Mm -hmm. while you interview for the most important job of your life. (laughs) That's a
3: small change, but I think that's a big change. Mm -hmm. Um, And one more thing, when I was discussing the role models being female, I think, and Jen highlighted this, is there's also a role for the males uh, to play in this. And I was incredibly blessed because I had um, my... Advisor, who was my dissertation chair, Pete Betke and all the rest of my committee were all um, males, but they did such a great job in terms of advising me and helping me through that I, you know, I, I had the role models of women, but I think there's also a role for the, a great Absolutely. role for the men to play, which is kind of mm-hmm. be good advisors to, you know, your female um, students. And I, I was very grateful to have good experiences, basically. On that oh,
1: I, I have to second that. I mean, a lot of Leah's advisors and professors were also mine, and they completely understood that I had a partner, that I had a mm-hmm. geographical preference based on where my partner lived and worked. And, you know, they were just incredibly supportive mm-hmm. about working with me through all of that in a way that they might, I mean, there was no need for them to do that, but they were incredibly supportive. So I absolutely second that. I think we underestimate how... There was a need for them to do that, actually, and we've highlighted that today. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, no, i I oh sorry, absolutely. No, 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 what I meant by need (laughs) is uh, their job (laughs) role description was not that you also need to account for all these various things, right? Their job was to teach me economics and guide me through my mm-hmm. dissertation. But that's what I meant by yes. there was no like, you know, official on paper need. But they really stepped up and they really, you know, like like took it upon themselves to really understand, you know, a cultural or a gender issue that, mm-hmm. that, that at that time it was so crucial in not having me drop out of the academy. And yeah. I can't, I mean, I, I'm so grateful, uh, and I can't emphasize that enough. I was personally just shocked by when I saw the AEA survey results because my experience with the male role models at George Mason University was so different. Yes you know, like just yeah. diametrically opposite to what I read about on the econ job market rumor exactly. site <laughs> yeah. or what I saw in the survey. I was just flabbergasted. So yeah. uh, you're absolutely right, Leah. Like the, like the male role models may carry even more weight because they already have a certain power and status within the economics academy and they can build you up exactly and they can use that social capital to build you up or to to sort of help you in a very vulnerable and crucial position and i think that's why i didn't mean to correct you but actually compliment like
2: exactly what you're saying is it may not be in their job description but if we want to talk about how to help women it's doing that 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 should be in their job description absolutely it's accommodating needs accommodating diversity accommodating the unique situations that many women find themselves in and that is that should be part of their job description exactly the things that Shruti underlined. yeah
0: really important conversation to keep on having Um, unfortunately we run out of time uh, but I want to thank you all so much for joining us uh, on the government's podcast today thank you thank you you. it was a pleasure to all of our listeners you can learn more about our other podcasts events and research by following us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook at CSGSKCL We look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast.